Welcome to the Jolly Podcast. I'm your host, Melissa Barrett. This podcast is for those who are interested in the conversation around diversity, inclusion, and equity. Each week, I'll be interviewing a guest who has something special to share or is actively part of building solutions in this space. Let's get started. Dr. Helen Turnbull is a world-recognized thought leader in global inclusion and diversity. Her extensive research focuses on unconscious bias and its impact on all aspects of inclusion. She has unparalleled knowledge on the complexity of inclusion and a deep understanding of the patterns and mental models contributing to exclusion. She's the author of three online psychometric assessment tools on unconscious bias and inclusion, namely Cognizant, the ISM profile, and the gender gap assessment. She also has an e-learning program on unconscious bias and inclusion, and she is a frequent keynote speaker on these topics globally, speaking to senior executives in every continent. In addition to her PhD, Dr. Turnbull has two master's degrees in organizational behavior and mental health counseling and an undergraduate degree in psychology and sociology from the Open University. She has won numerous awards for her contributions, including the Distinguished Research Award for a journal article and her most recent book called The Illusion of Inclusion, which is really her seminal work on this topic. As a professional member of the National Training Laboratories, she developed and delivered their first ever three-day virtual annual member meeting. And she is an accomplished keynote speaker recognized by the National Speakers Association as a certified speaking professional and a global speaking fellow. She is one of only 33 people in the world with this designation. In addition, Dr. Turnbull has award-winning clients. And what that means is that not only is she doing the work to make major contributions, but her clients are actually doing the work and also receiving awards in the areas of diversity, equity, and inclusion. So please join me in welcoming Dr. Helen Turnbull. All right. So I am so excited today to be joined by Dr. Helen Turnbull, PhD, also the author of The Illusion of Inclusion. And so I really want to dig into some of these details because as I was reading your book, I was so, there was just so many nuggets of great information. And I know since you have been working in the space now for... Yeah. Decades, I'll say, (laughs) that you have a lot of wisdom when it comes to just this journey of diversity and inclusion that is ever present now as we as we talk about it. So, first of all, I would love to ask you, like, how you got to the the actual title of the book, The Illusion of Inclusion. So thank you, Melissa, for having me today and looking forward to this conversation. The illusion of inclusion, right? So I got to the title in many ways because I've long believed that as well-intentioned people, we believe that we behave inclusively, but we don't really. I believe that from a neuroscience perspective, our brains are hardwired for selfishness and similarity. 
and not for diversity and inclusion. So in other words, our brain, our limbic brain actually protects us. So it's that almost the amygdala, the fight flight is, is this person a friend or a foe? Should I lean in or should I back off? And that all of us have that instinct that's not going to go away. And therefore, I think we're much more careful about who we include than we want to believe we are. So the idea that we can have a policy statement that says we're an inclusive organization is great and it should be there. But I also think we have to take stock, uh, be honest with ourselves about, am I really being inclusive? of this group or these individuals or that person, because there's a a myriad of reasons why I can justify my mind not including you. Yeah, it was really interesting to me also as you were going into just the unconscious bias, but also kind of how you can have triggers of unconscious bias that, you know, even though you have a focus and you're aware that the unconscious bias can actually be triggered, you know, maybe from an event 10, 20, 30 years ago that you don't even know about. That's right. We, we get triggered and stimulated by our, our history, obviously, our own personal history and the history of, of our group membership. And uh, we're not consciously walking around aware of many of these issues. And so for me as a white person, for example, I don't wake up every morning and say, wow, I'm still white today. Um, I don't always know how my privilege shows up. I don't always know when I'm making decisions unconsciously about people. You know, I, I believe that as we walk from our office to the, the front reception to pick up a candidate, that the minute we see the candidate, we've made decisions. I mean, they say we make decisions about people in three to four seconds. I do believe that's true, but I also believe that we make diversity decisions in that same three to four seconds. And the very idea that we say, I don't notice that you're black. If you don't notice I'm black, you're either colorblind or you're running red lights, one or the other, uh, <laughs> because obviously we do see color. So that's a story we tell ourselves. So I, I think that the, the work around inclusion and DEI starts with ourselves. It starts with me taking a long, hard look at How does my privilege as a white person show up? How am I interacting with people? Who do I let in and who do I keep out? Yeah, that's really interesting to me because then you talk a little bit about Mm self-sabotage and then you go into the immutable forces of inclusion, Mm -hmm. which is kind of a journey in itself. So can you talk a little bit about about that? I can because... I think that there are, in, in my book, The Illusion of Inclusion, I talk about what I call the inclusion complexity model. And it has three immutable forces and four permeable forces. I talk about the immutable forces first. Is The first one is the issue of dominance. Is that I believe that dominance is never going to go away. It's immutable. It's there to stay. Now, what could change is which group is dominant. And I think that's part of what we're seeing in the world right now as people struggle with, wait a minute, I want to be inclusive, but I don't want to lose my share of the power base, right? And and so the question is that dominance will always be there. It's there in our interpersonal relationships. Who's the dominant partner in the relationship? 
who gets to say where we go for dinner nine times out of ten, etc. And it's there in our relationships across race and gender, sexual orientation. So I don't think that's going to change. And because it's not going to change, I believe that people, leaders, uh, people in the DNI space, HR people, need to be very aware of its presence and the impact of it. Where does privilege, power, and difference show up? And how does it show up? And when we talk about inclusion, we can't talk about it in isolation of the dominance of privilege and power. That's awesome. And that's the first immutable force. Mm -hmm. And the second one is the issue of unconscious bias, which you mentioned earlier. That Look, the, the good news about unconscious bias is it's become trendy. We've been talking about it now for, what, maybe 10 years. It's the thing that everybody wants to learn about. But it's never going to go away. I do not believe that just because you learn to describe affinity bias or pattern recognition that you can stop it from happening. I think it's going to live there. It's going to creep up and get you. Um, if you've watched my TED Talk, you'll know that I talk about one of my unconscious biases was finding myself about 15 years ago, maybe on a plane from Dallas to Fort Lauderdale with a woman pilot and, and panicking. And thinking, oh, well, there's a woman flying this 757. Maybe I should get off and take a flight tomorrow morning. And I thought, Helen, hang on a minute. Don't be ridiculous. I mean, you're a diversity consultant. You're not meant to think like this. And um, so what I got in touch with that night, though, quite seriously, is, well, why is she making me nervous? Why am I not assuming she's just as competent to sit there as a man? And this is International Women's Month, so here I am, right? Uh, admitting that, that as a woman, it goes back to these individual biases that we have to work on, is that my image of a competent airline pilot was tall, white, male, with silver-gray hair, probably ex-military, Air Force or Navy. Now, he could fly the plane. I was questioning whether she could. And that's how our unconscious biases can show up in a in a millisecond. And so they're never going to go away. They're going to keep sitting there. You have to take them from the back of your neck to the edge of your shoulder and at least know that they're there. So next time I find myself on a plane, uh, post-pandemic, of course, then I'll know if I see a woman in the cockpit, I'll realize, okay, Ellen, calm down. That Not that it's gone away, not that it's no longer an issue for me, but that I have to manage it. And, and so I believe that unconscious bias is an immutable force. And the third immutable force, a little bit more complicated, it's what I call degrees of difference. It's our tendency to want to be, if you like, binary in the way we talk about diversity and inclusion, where we talk about gender and we say men and women. We talk about race and in this country we refer black and white. And then we add in all the other diverse groups and or heterosexual and LGBTQI. When in actual fact, all of us live somewhere on that normal distribution curve. There are degrees of difference amongst white women. There are degrees of difference amongst black women. There are degrees of difference amongst white men. And it's not just the individuality. It's the fact that some people live on the right-hand side of the curve where they never think about these issues. And other people are on the left-hand side of the curve thinking, it's the first thing I think about in the morning. And then there's people in between. Yeah, I'm aware of it, but. And so I think that the degrees of difference are often ignored in the corporate world. Because what we do, and I understand this, 
is we start at the top of the organization and we say, we have to train the leaders. And so we put programs in place for the senior leaders. And then we think, now let's get to the next level of the management. And then we roll something, maybe a two-hour thing or an online thing, all the way down the organization. So we're looking at the vertical axis. But what I'm arguing in degrees of difference is we also have to manage the horizontal access and then the intersectionalities in between. And so there's relationships here. For me individually, I'm white, I'm a woman, I'm heterosexual, I'm Christian, etc. And I'm a baby boomer. All of these things matter to me, but they don't all matter in the same moment necessarily. But the other part is the relationships that I as a white woman, for example, Melissa, have with you as a woman of color. Do I make unconscious assumptions because we're both women that we share a lot in common? And do I not see, because it's in my blind spot, that as a woman of color, you have a different experience, that you have a different story to tell, not just individually, but from your group identity. And so degrees of difference means that we have to unpack this much more carefully than we're currently doing. Yeah, it's funny that you mentioned that because I think when when you start tossing out intersectionality, people, I mean, it kind of goes back to you spend a lot of time talking about the Rubik's Cube in your book. Mm-hmm. And it kind of reminds me of that because there's so many different dimensions and me being, you know, Hispanic and African-American, for example, it's like, am I more Hispanic or less Hispanic or more black? or on one day than another or whatever. And it's like, it's, it's all who I am. I am who I am on any particular day, connecting in lots of different ways with people. Yes. And I think what's interesting is, and probably you get asked this a lot with respect to just the negativity associated with diversity and inclusion, because now we have people, you know, fully engaged and they want to understand like how to build momentum and move this. And I know you've been working in it for a long time, but how do you deal with folks that are maybe not interested in embracing this whole notion of diversity and inclusion? Right. So I believe a couple of things about that. One is that I've long believed that if I can, if I can reach 10% of my audience and have them go from folding their arms, rolling their eyes and thinking, really diversity for the next few hours uh, to actually thinking, you know what? That was pretty interesting. I didn't expect it to be so interesting. If I can reach 10% of the audience who then go out and reach 10% of their audience, then we begin to make a difference. I do not, I also, want to take people where they're at in the journey. I don't assume that everyone that I'm working with knows nothing, nor do I assume that they all know all the answers. And so I'm going to try to interact with people based on what they tell me around their feelings. I also don't make the assumption that I'll reach everyone, that that's where that person's at on their journey, and there's not much I can do in this moment to change them. But if I can change enough minds and hearts, then I can start to help people to look at what do they have to do, A, to individually be more inclusive and B, collectively be more inclusive as an organization. And I do have a reputation for doing this work in a way that's very non-threatening, but it really helps people to see the issues and to lean into the issues and to hear each other. Because I think that's part of the 
of the, the work and the conversation is if I can't hear what you're saying, Melissa, then there's no common ground for us to be able to come together on this challenge. Yeah, it's so funny you say that because I always look at diversity and inclusion as the use case for diversity and inclusion. You know, you are creating the conversation. You're connecting, you're, you know, identifying those differences and hopefully synergizing and creating new wonderful things just based on our own unique positions in in many cases. So I, I love that idea. And then you talk, I think one conversation I had with you in the past, you were talking about how a lot of times, even as you look at people where they are, sometimes they're not looking at the other person where they are. And it's not always about us, right? It's oftentimes about where someone else is on the journey as well as where we are. That's right. Because I think that there are individual stories. I mean, one of the things I've learned over the years of doing this work, I started doing DNI work in 1985, actually. And one of the things I've learned is that you don't always know a person's story. So I don't have the privilege of knowing your story. So I'm not necessarily clear on why you're getting triggered or reacting in a certain way. And that even if I don't know your story, respectfully, I need to know that you have one. And that that's part of, of trying to work with people when there's resistance to this topic. I mean, I will say to leaders when I'm working with them, if I could give you a 10% increase in the bottom line of your business, would you be interested? And I've never had anyone say no. If I could give you a 10% lift in, in employee engagement, would you be interested? And people obviously say yes, because the Gallup poll suggests that in 2019, they said that there was um, 65%, 65% of people are not engaged at work. I mean, that's huge. And I actually believe quite sincerely that a way to close that gap is to figure out how to be a more inclusive work environment because it's not about hiring diverse people. It's figuring out what you have to do to keep the same diverse people that you hired and not just have a revolving door, you know, so... I mean, you can look across your organization and say, you know, we've got diversity, Helen. And I'm like, yeah, but do you have inclusion? Do people want to stay? Or if I come back a month from now, will it be the same diverse people in the organization? And so I think the work is in separating diversity, equity, and inclusion are all three different pieces of work, basically. Yeah, you're you're definitely, and I think in your book, you also talk about, I want to say it's globalization versus... Globalization. Yeah. 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 <laughs> yes. Which I thought was really interesting because, you know, you're really talking about diversity on a global scale, but really adding in that local flavor, mm-hmm. I'll call it, <laughs> for, you know, the needs of the local community of wherever it is your company is. I thought that was really cool. Yes. And if if you think about that, the major corporations over the years, that's where privilege, power and difference shows up is when we expand to be global and then we send our people from the U.S. or the U.K. to whichever country and they run the organization. They manage the plan. They put the senior managers in place and then they train the locals. But they rarely, until recently, trained the locals to become the CEO. 
to become the head of the, the you know, the, the leadership team for marketing, et cetera. And so there's been a trend in recent years away from globalization towards globalization, which says, let's get the local senior leaders in place as soon as possible. So because they understand the culture much better than we do. Yeah, that's awesome. Let's pause for a moment. We'll be right back. And then you talk about diversity, equity, and inclusion and the work that you've been doing. And I know you've been doing it for a long time. So there's lots of people that are out there maybe thinking they're at the beginning of their journey. Mm -hmm. And, you know, to your point about the illusion of inclusion, which is kind of almost like ever evading, (laughs) you know, how do you think, I know you go into specific assessments and all of those things. Are there things that companies should be thinking about in order to really drive momentum? Well, I mean, I I think I start with any client where they're at is tell me how much work you've already done. Tell me about your workforce and then really custom designing for that situation. I think that the real issue is, again, it's recognizing what's the work around diversity. Are you putting in place systems and procedures that allow for equity? So are you making opportunities available for women and people of color to move up through the organization? Do you have policies in place that you live up to? So it's not okay, for example, to have a policy statement on the wall of every conference room that says that you treat everyone equally and then have a workforce of perhaps people who are gay and lesbian who don't feel safe to talk about being gay or lesbian because they know that's not okay in the company. So when your policy statements are disconnected to the way people feel, there's work to do in the diversity space. Around equity, it really is about pay and different things. Are you really looking at what equity means in the systems and procedures? And then in inclusion, I think I, I try to help organizations to see all the variables that make up. Inclusion feels like a soft word. People think, of course, I'm inclusive. I mean, I've never met anyone who says I'm going to work today to exclude people. And at the same time, we're not all inclusive. And I think that that's what I want to help people to look at. And that you mentioned my assessment tools a minute ago. And I developed three online assessment tools, Melissa, because I realized that leaders like numbers. They like things they can measure. They like ways to prove that there's an issue. And so I thought, well, If I could show them through these assessment tools that they individually have work to do and that they collectively have work to do, and I could show it to them numerically, then perhaps I can demonstrate that we have to close this inclusion gap. And that's what I set out to do, is to help leaders to see that they need to have some skin in the game. It's not okay to delegate this to HR and say, yep, I know there's a diversity issue. Why don't you you know, run a program here and there. It's not okay. We have to see what's what's the work I have to do, which I think in many ways brings me to the other part of my model in my book is the permeable, the mm-hmm. permeable force. I was just about to go there. <laughs> yes, please. There's four of them. The first one is affinity bias. And we've all got that. It's not going to go away. Each of us has an affinity to hang out with people that make us comfortable not necessarily from my own race or culture, 
but people that align with my values. And that's never going to go away. But what I have to challenge is who's in my inner circle and who am I not letting in? You know, because every yes. one of us can probably cite the person in the meeting whom I just can't listen to because their voice annoys me, it hurts my ears, <laughs> or I just don't think they're quite smart enough. And we've all got ways to shut people out or I have to work with them. I'm not going to lunch with them, that kind of thing. And, but we have to ask ourselves, who are we letting in? Who do we have an affinity for? And who are we shutting out? Because quite often, the people we shut out notice us more than we notice them. So, you know, if I don't, if I'm your boss and I don't say good morning to you, but I say good morning to everyone else, you know that I'm not saying good morning to you. And you can make up a story about that. Yeah. It well, might be right or wrong, but. And those are the things that stick with you, right? Those are those mm-hmm. subtle acts of exclusion that people carry with them. And those are become these triggers later. Yes, exactly. You know, when somebody asks you to do something, it's like, you didn't even say hello to me before. Now, all of a sudden. Now you notice me, right? <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Now when you want something. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. yeah. So I don't think affinity bias is ever going to go away. But I think we do have to, if we're sincere about D&I, I think we do have to challenge our own tendency to shut people out and ask ourselves, what's that about? You know? Yeah. So Yeah. And sometimes it does seem like it's, you know, like I didn't even notice that I did that, you know? Yeah, so, exactly. Yeah. And the second one is, um, is assimilation. And it's a little bit more complicated, but I think of it as the other side of the coin from affinity biases. If I have an affinity for people who are like me, and then I bring in people who are different, diverse, then everybody who's diverse is trying to figure out what they have to do to keep me comfortable. So what is it I need to do? This is Helen's style. What do I need to do to make sure that I keep Helen comfortable? And so each one of us, and white men do it too, but each one of us does something every day to to fit into the organization, to adjust our style. And um, Deloitte University did some excellent research. I think it was in 2013 where they interviewed over 3,000 people and asked them, do you bring your best self to work? Do you feel free to bring your best self to work? I don't have the numbers in my head, but it's like 84% of, of people of color said, no, we, we don't bring our best selves to work. We don't feel free. We're covering up a part of ourselves. And all the way down to, I want to say 55% of white men, heterosexual white men also said, I don't bring my best authentic self to work. So every one of us is doing something each day to make sure that I fit into the culture of the organization, but the, the, the real question is, what are we losing? And what kind of environment could we create to allow people to bring their best and most authentic self? I do argue that people shouldn't bring their whole selves to work because I think there's a piece of all of us we should just- <laughs> Leave at home, Leave right? at home, yes. <laughs> you know, leave it for the weekend, you know? Yes. <laughs> but, um, but I think that we, we could, you know, it's that inclusion gap that Gallup talked about that we could close that if we began to figure out what am I doing as the leader of this team, Melissa, to shut you down? What am I doing that doesn't make you feel safe to tell me what's really going on or to give me your best ideas? Yeah. So, so I think assimilation, I, I 
have a, a client a number of years ago, an African-American male, whom I was standing next to when he was talking to his CEO, white male, and he changed what he was about to say mid-sentence because both of us could see the CEO getting uncomfortable with the conversation. And I asked him afterwards, so how did that feel? He said, it didn't feel good, Helen. He said, but I knew that he was getting uncomfortable and I knew if I didn't switch what I was saying, then we were going nowhere. He said, and you need to live to fight another day, right? And so all of us do that. But I think leaders need to, they need to take a look at this issue of what am I asking my employees to do? It's not okay to just say, well, Helen, listen, I've got diversity on my team. I, I once said that to a senior manager and he said to me, my women are happy. And I said, I said, okay, okay. how do you know? Have you asked them? He said, well, no, but they've never complained. And I said, well, you might want to ask. You might want to have a conversation about are they able to bring their best selves to the table? So yeah, it's that's complex. Yeah, I know. I, I've heard people say, well, you know, I have diversity. You know, I have two black people on my team or, you know, whatever. Right. And it's kind of like, really? Is that how we're defining? <laughs> Is that how we're measuring this? <laughs> right. Right. So it's interesting. I think the other thing that you talk a lot about is the, the unconscious incompetency mm-hmm. and, you know, kind of the, and I've always thought about it as the journey to, you know, conscious inclusion, but mm-hmm. you actually have kind of all these other components in here on the journey to, I think it's unconscious competency. Competence, yes, yes, yeah. <laughs> so yeah. I was like, oh, this is a tongue twister as I as I start to <laughs> think because, fun. you know, you do kind of start off with, I think you said unconscious incompetence. Yeah, yeah. And then you start to, you become aware, you know, like you mm-hmm. and the airplane pilot, you at least noticed it, right? Because right, I think right. a lot of people just kind of, go just make the judgment and right. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, I'm a terrible flyer as much as I fly. I am a white knuckler for sure. For me, it's like, I don't care who's flying the plane at all. I just don't want to be up in the air (laughs) to begin with. It doesn't seem natural. Right. (laughs) (laughs) But you know, I think it's, it's the journey to unconscious competency. Competence. Yeah competence mm-hmm. is a challenging one because there's so many different, you know, dimensions that you get into yes. with respect yes. to, you know, your own beliefs and values and your your environment and, and all of those things. Absolutely. I mean, I think I used the example in my book about learning to play golf, for yes. example. Mm-hmm. That, that I mean, I, I've been playing golf since I was 12 years of age, but when you first play golf, when you look at somebody playing golf, you think that's easy. But when you pick up that golf club and try to hit that tiny little ball, you discover it's not so easy. So you go from an unconscious incompetence where you just don't know to suddenly you're consciously incompetent because you've discovered, I, I don't know how to do this. This is harder than it looked. And and then if you're willing to stay the course, then eventually, like a Tiger Woods, becomes conscious, unconsciously competent, doesn't have to think too much about how to hit that ball well. And the same is true for how we, we work with the, the illusion of inclusion and the complexity of inclusion is that it takes work for me to become unconsciously competent. 
that I really have to figure out what biases I'm bringing to the table, what assumptions I'm making, and what adjustments I'm willing to make in order to be in relationship with people of difference. Before, And I, I also don't think you ever can reach a point where you think, okay, I've graduated. Yeah. I'm inclusive you know, now, I, right? Yeah, <laughs> I've got it. Yeah, stamp of approval. I don't think we ever reach that point. And I, a case in point for me, Melissa, is the, the recent conversation about uh, gender identity and gender pronouns, etc. That is uh, complicated for people who've never thought about it before. Forget the resistance that we're hearing. I understand all of that because that's going to mirror the, the conversation about racism over the years, but it's complicated. And if you've never had to think about what pronouns you're willing to use and, and use other people's preferred pronouns, and you're like, well, hold on a minute, why should I? And so now I go from that was never on my radar screen to feeling unconsciously, or sorry, consciously incompetent. Yeah. Well, it is yeah. so funny because I think you talk about a lot of companies sitting in the level three, which I think is like conscious incompetence. Yep. Uh, Look, I'm trying, I'm testing my memory here. I I think, you know, it's interesting to me because I find that it's almost like you go back and forth between, okay, I am now unconsciously competent about Mm. knowing something that I maybe didn't know before. Right. But then you think you, you are consciously competent and then you realize, well, maybe I don't know as much as I thought I knew, <laughs> right? Because That's right. there's That's so right. many. And so you could literally, to me, I feel like you could go back and forth and back and forth. And, and that whole journey to unconscious competence yeah. becomes a lot more evasive because, you know, it's like, can I really get to the point where I just unconsciously am competent about so many different things, you know. I don't have to think about this anymore because I know I'm always going to say the right thing or listen correctly. That doesn't happen. Yeah. You know, there's there's so many, uh, you know, variables in this story and it's always evolving. I mean, I think that takes me to, because I'm sure your listeners won't love it if we don't talk about the last two permeable forces. Please. The, the third one is political correctness. And for me, when I started writing the book, I thought, oh, you know, political correctness has gone too far because really what it's doing is it's causing us not to be honest with each other. But I was writing the book in, in the 2015 timeframe and I began to think maybe it hasn't gone too far. Maybe we need a little bit more of it so that we can stop saying, you know, insulting things to each other. And so I came to the conclusion, to be honest with you, that being PC, as it's currently defined, is not helpful because it does silence all of us. It makes us, it doesn't encourage us to have courageous conversations. It doesn't encourage us to give each other grace in, in the relationship we build. So I redefined it to mean polite consideration that we really do have to be curious and polite and interested if we're genuinely wanting an inclusive environment. And if we're genuinely wanting to be inclusive, we can't have a closed mind. We have to be open to differences and to make space for each other. So so that's the third one. And the last one is the issue of Claude Steele, 
who wrote a book called A Whistling Vivaldi, where he talked about the idea that an African-American young man who was a student of his walking down the street and noticing white people crossing the street to avoid him. And he decided that he was going to learn to whistle classical music. So he started Whistling Vivaldi, and that's the name of the book, Whistling Vivaldi. And now he began to notice white people smiling at him because classical music, now this is the unconscious bias, classical music seems recognizable and less threatening. And so he noticed the difference. And what uh, what uh, Claudia was talking about is internalized oppression, is what are the negative messages that you get as a woman of color, I get as a woman, because that's my subculture identity, uh, that I take on and sabotage myself. So I, I don't need men to tell me that, you know, I'm not as powerful as they are in whatever way, because I can tell myself that story. You know, I, imposter syndrome is a, a, a typical example as a woman thinking, I know I'm really good at what I do, but if only they knew. Uh, you know, so we have this story in our head that we're not as powerful as we think we are. And so internalized oppression, I, I was with a colleague the other day there when he said, as a black male, that he was giving more credence to what other people said about him rather than the view he had of himself. And I think that that really is an accurate way to describe this, the damage that's done yeah. by the dominant culture telling subcultures who we think you are. Yeah. Uh, and then we take on that message and, and live down to it rather than up and beyond it. Well, and a lot of times when we, I think sometimes we make up our own stories, right? We constantly have that story of doubt in our mind. I yep. think we were just talking about, you know, we are our own worst critics. Yes. <laughs> and yet, you know, we, there are so many things that we do right and that we should be confident about. You know, I mean, you, you mentioned the imposter syndrome, you know, we, we talk about code switching a lot um, yep. and you mentioned yep. an example of that. So it, it's, it's interesting to me that you, the way you go through the process that you also talk about, you, you kind of bring everybody through and then you really go back to, it starts with you being mm -hmm. that inclusive change agent. Yeah. Which, yes. which I thought was just awesome because really everybody at a company, no matter where you are, I mean, the company is made up of people and yes. we can only go as far as the people are, are allowing us to go. Exactly. And I think it's awesome that, you know, when we start with the board or the CEO, we have to be able to, to drill down but we do get to that frozen middle. Mm -hmm. And so that becomes a challenge to try to permeate whether you're coming up the organization or going down. How do you start to permeate some of those challenges that are that exist within the middle? Yeah, and I, I think sometimes the frozen middle happens when the people at the top are not engaged enough in the messaging. And so, you know, my, my earlier reference to it's not okay for leaders to just say to HR, figure out what, what training we need and here's the budget, that the leaders themselves have to be uh, speaking authentically and with one voice and so that they make it clear to the frozen middle that they're sincere about wanting this kind of change 
and not that this is an HR program that A is being imposed on people and B taken away from my real job. You know, I mean, I make a strong case that diversity and inclusion is part of your real job and that it, it, that would close that inclusion gap that the, the Gallup poll talks about and doing that work would improve your productivity and your employee engagement, your commitment, your employee turnover, and all of the things that you over here care about. Uh, if you would do this work well, you would have more, more engaged, more committed, more loyal, uh, more productive employees. And so I think that it's important to understand that DEI work is not separate. It's part of, of what is your leadership mission. And when, when you have congruency in that, you have better results. Awesome. I don't, that's like such an awesome way to, uh, to pull this to a close because I think it's, it's just such a wonderful opportunity to chat with you and to talk about all the things that you have been doing. I mean, since 1985, I'm sure you feel like maybe we've come some distance, but we still have a long way to go. (laughs) Well, I kind of feel, Melissa, that we've taken a few steps back, obviously, in the last year or so. And at the same time, in the last 12 months, I've been doing a lot of webinars on Zoom for clients talking about how to become an ally. And so how do you partner with each other across race, across differences, in order to become advocates and partners in creating a more inclusive workspace? I think it's important to have these conversations to help people to understand what it's not okay to say as well as what it's it's helpful to do, you know, so. Yeah. The work is not done. No, you're right. You're right. And it's not always, and, you know, to your point, it's not black and white. Sometimes it's black and black, you know, or, yeah. you know, yes. or white and white. Like, let's talk to each other and make sure that we're, exactly. we're connecting. So I think that whole reframing process that you, that you talk about is so important. So any, any final things you want, you want to talk about with respect to diversity, equity, and inclusion? Yeah, I think I, I would just close by saying, you know, so one of my favorite quotes is from Socrates who said, the unexamined life is not worth living. But I, I would want people to think that their unchallenged brain is not worth trusting. And so that we really have to do the work of thinking, what mental models do I have? What uh, mind viruses, if you like, am I carrying that are stopping me from being willing to lean in and be more inclusive? And so the work starts with you. And and if you can do that work, then you can more authentically make a difference in your organizations. That is awesome. The unchallenged brain. I love it. I love it. It's not trusting. (laughs) Right. It's not worth trusting. It's not worth trusting. So, you know, I think we all have to realize it's it's not a bad thing to have that tension for you to really challenge yourself first. Yeah. And then kind of challenge other people around you with your allyship. Yes, I I don't, I wouldn't say that I I do this work with humility. That's probably not true. But but I do this work recognizing that that there's a lot more to learn. I was in, I was chairing a conference last year and uh, one of the senior white men, it was not a corporate conference, but one of the senior white men uh, said, I'd like to have the chat switched off. And the chat had been a little bit interrupted the day before. We were on Zoom. 
And my response to him in part was because we were running 30 minutes behind. And I thought, oh, that might be helpful. And I said, I said to the technical people, can we do that? And the woman said, yes, yes, we can do that. I said, okay, let's do it. And an African-American woman said, stop. She said, right there, right there. That's an example of privilege. White man says something, white woman agrees. Nobody else gets asked if it's okay. It was devastating in the moment. I was like, whoa, me? Are you kidding me? You just pulled me up? Uh, I'm supposed to know better. And yet, you know, on reflection, I I didn't love that moment, uh, if I'm honest. And I didn't love because I tried to explain and she said, I'm not interested in your intentions. So I didn't love the exchange that happened. But afterwards, what I got in touch with was as a white woman, how much I hear white men's voices as the voice of authority. Mm, yes. And I unconsciously responded to him saying, let's do this. And I said, yes, okay, sir. And without realizing in that moment that I wasn't asking other people what they thought. So it's very easy. And that's why I believe if it lives in my body, Melissa, it lives in yours. And it lives in everyone else's who's listening to us today. And that's why we have to do the work and be honest with ourselves. You know, it's not all fun. Yeah. No, Sometimes that's I for sure. Over it. Yeah. We you know? all trip over it. Right. So, yeah. you know, we can always be better and learn better. And once you know better, you do better. You do better. Right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Well, thank you so much, Dr. Helen Turnbull, for participating in this wonderful conversation Keep doing the fabulous work that you're doing. And I just am so privileged that we were able to connect through another workshop so that I could get to know you. So hopefully we will continue to stay in touch. And I thank you for um, all of your work in the space. Thank you, Melissa. It was a pleasure. I enjoyed our conversation. Thanks for joining me on the Jolly Podcast. Please subscribe so you won't miss an episode. See you next week. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.